The reading for today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 10, or chapter 17, verse 16 to 34. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange thinkers. We wish that and foreigners would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The word of the Lord. Again, I want to just remind you, um, before service at 10 o'clock in the room right over there, we have our morning Bible study, formerly known as the Theology Q&A. And so uh, it's really a good time. Uh, We had a full house today, so um, please come and uh, just enjoy that time and learn more about the Bible um, during the season of Lent. And again... After service today, I invite all of you to stay for lunch and a time of small group Bible study afterwards. Um, for those of you who are new, we are going through the New City Catechism, and we are in the midst of the first section. We're actually coming to the end of the first section, and uh, we are now on question 17. And I want to, again, encourage you to listen to the songs as a way of helping you memorize uh, these questions and answers. So let's uh, review together. And I, okay, so uh, if you can, uh, try to recite it without looking at the screen. Question one, 
What is our only hope if in death? Question two, what is God? Question three, how many persons are there in God? Question four, how and why did God create us? Question five, what else did God create? Question six, how can we glorify God? Question seven, what does the law of God require? Question eight, what is the law of God stated in the Ten Commandments? Question 13, can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Question 14, did God create us unable to keep the law? No. 15, since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? What is sin? And today's question is 17. What is idolatry? Let's pray together. Lord, we, we are thankful for this day that you have made as you continue to sustain this world that you provide for us a place to gather to hear your word to be together uh, in your presence help us now in the hearing of your word to deepen our love for you and for one another and to transform our lives in obedience with that word we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, <clears throat> about two months ago, when we were doing the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, there was a sermon about idols. And so, I want to take a, a little bit different uh, take on what I did back then. So, today's context is Paul is on a series of visits to various churches. And he's had a pretty rough trip. He's been uh, kicked out of the city of Pisidian Antioch. He's been threatened with being stoned in Iconium. Uh, he got stoned, not like the cool kind of getting stoned, but like literally physically stoned, um, and left for dead in Lystra. He was imprisoned in Philippi. And then he was kicked out of Thessalonica and Berea because of his preaching, uh, causing riots. And so his friends basically put him on a boat to sail the uh, 250 miles or so along the, uh, the, uh, the Greek coast to the city of Athens. And, and I think they just wanted to just get him out, 
uh, from the dangers to a place of safety, maybe take a little break. And so Paul ends up in Athens, and he's waiting for his friends to arrive. And as he's waiting, he's just kind of walking around this great city, this once great city, uh, not so great now, but um, 500 years prior to Paul's arrival, this was the great city, you know, Plato and Socrates and all those guys. Uh, but now the city is sort of on the, on the back end of its glory. One scholar called it in the late afternoon of her glory. And it was said of Athens at this time that it was easier to find a god than it was to find a man. And that's what Paul experiences. Idols were everywhere. And that's the thing that really, really strikes him. And when he sees all these idols... He's not impressed by the beauty of the temples and the, the carvings and all of that. His spirit is just agitated when he sees all these idols. He knows the commandment against idol making, against the worship of idols, and, and he recognizes the danger of all these idols surrounding the city. And so for him, it presents an opportunity to share the gospel. So he goes to the synagogue, to the places of worship, he goes to the mall, to the grocery store, he goes to the university, and he talks to everyone who happens to be there about Jesus. And some of the people are ordinary shoppers. Some of the folks are religious people who are curious about what he has to say. And then you have two other groups of people that we are told about, the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. And they don't think a whole lot about what Paul has to say. They call him a babbler, uh, which is a really good insult. The word babbler means one who picks up scraps. And it was sometimes used to describe a bird that might go around picking up little scraps of food. And a babbler was someone who didn't really have any original or really insightful ideas, but one who was kind of a, you know, a third-rate philosopher intellectual just picking up an idea here and here and just kind of passing along trying to sound uh, intellectual but not really right there's nothing substantial uh, in that the epicureans and the stoics were two popular philosophies of the day now even if people weren't self-identifying as epicureans or as um, stoics it was the kind of um, cultural uh, sensibility that permeated Athens. So the Epicureans, they rejected God. They did not believe in God. Or they would say that even if there is a God, God is certainly not interested in the everyday affairs of human beings. So they kind of despised religion and thought that the good life ought to be lived in such a way that you maximize the enjoyment or the pleasures of life and minimize the pains. So I, I think of them today like they're um, materialists, right? They're longing for the good life without God, practical atheists, agnostics, right? Think of the people who don't believe in God, but who are living really good, um, at least from all outside, um, from what we can see, like they're living good, decent, happy lives. The Stoics, on the other hand, believe that the universe was ordered by something they call the mind of God or the logos of God. And this is the word that John will use in his gospel. In the beginning was the word, or the Logos. And so they believe that we, all of us human beings, had something of this divine reason or this divine word implanted in us, and we were all somehow connected with this sort of um, world or universal soul. 
right? So it wasn't a personal God or anything like that, but they believed that there was some sense in which we were all connected to some sort of uh, reason um, that made sense of the chaos of the universe. So they valued um, cultivating a life that was harmonious with nature, uh, a life that was really characterized by, you know, just kind of grin and bear it, right? They tried to be uh, dispassionate about living and to just kind of find your place in the world, uh, almost fatalistic, and to live accordingly. And so uh, these I would think of as uh, modern-day deists, right, or people who, who kind of believe in a God, that, that God's sort of out there, but really, you know, it's really up to ourselves to, um, to do it. So, so both groups really, um, whether they acknowledge the reality of a God or not, uh, practically speaking, try to live according to reason, according to pleasure, uh, according to, you know, non-divine law. So both groups dismiss Paul because based on their perspective, the idea of the resurrection was absurd. Some of them, in fact, thought that Paul was talking about two different gods. You notice they said these divinities, the plural. Because the word resurrection uh, is the feminine form for a name, Anastasia. So they thought he was talking about Jesus and Anastasia. You know, maybe Jesus' girlfriend or something. Um, Because the the whole idea of the resurrection as a concept was just, just foreign. And so they take him to uh, Mars Hill, to university, perhaps, something like that. And they want to hear more about this because that's what they like to do. They just like to talk about different novel ideas. And so then Paul begins his message. He gives them a kind of uh, ambiguous compliment, kind of a backhanded compliment. He says, I see that you're very religious. I was walking around town, and I saw so many idols. In fact, I saw an altar to the unknown God. You are so religious that you want to make sure you cover every, you don't want to like miss out on a single possible God. And then he goes on to say that this God, whose name you don't know, whose identity you don't know, I know. And let me tell you about him. And so like a good Presbyterian, he gives a three-point sermon. It says, first, God is the creator of everyone and everything. He asserts this fact that creator is without arguing for that reality. Because they have so many idols, he says, you know, that points to your desire. Something in you is looking for something to worship. He quotes from their secular literature that identifies the same longing. In him we live and move and have our being. And as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. All of creation, Paul says, testifies to God. And so this is something uh, in theology is called either uh, natural theology or general revelation, that it is possible to some degree to look at the universe, look at the creation in nature and so on, and see something of the imprint or the handiwork of God. Uh, Of course, other people can see nature and think, well, it's just, it's just nature. There's, there's nothing divine about it at all. Then Paul says, secondly, that God is the creator, and therefore, because God is the creator, all human beings share common beginnings. Now, 
because this is a uh, non-church crowd, he doesn't talk about Adam and Eve. He doesn't appeal to the scriptures. He simply says, there is God, we can agree to that, and this God created human beings. All human beings have a common beginning. And this God allotted then times and geographies of each person asserting God's sovereignty, asserting God's omnipotence, but also highlighting God's involvement with human beings in that he uh, has ordained particular locations of various peoples. And then thirdly, he goes on to say, now the time has come to repent. He critiques their worship of idols, right? So he begins by kind of, you know, um, acknowledging their agreement, but then he goes on to critique their worship of idols. You have sensed the truth about God and about yourselves, but you've ignored it. The evidence of God's judgment is the resurrection. The resurrection here now is the assurance or the proof of God's coming judgment. And this is where it stops. The resurrection for the Athenians is a sticking point. They can't, most of them cannot get over this. The sociologist Emil Durkheim postulated over 100 years ago that human societies create God or religions as representatives of what it is that they value as a community, right? So we, we might value strength or wisdom or cleverness or whatever. And then we think of uh, a way to kind of represent that. So we might say strong as an ox or as wise as an owl, right? And then so then we, we make an image of an owl or an ox and we begin to worship that. And that's how he argues, you know, religions arise in various uh, communities. And um, there, I think there's some truth to that, right? We, we worship what we value. That, that's the argument, right? That, and in, in doing that, we're basically worshiping ourselves. That's, that's our idols. And I think in Various churches, you see evidence of this. In some churches, Jesus looks like an Anglo-Saxon Republican. In others, Jesus looks like a Chinese Confucian scholar. In some churches, Jesus is a calming presence, protecting family values. But in other churches, he's an activist dismantling institutions of racism and sexism. The well-meaning, I think well-meaning people, you know, we want to believe that what we believe and what we value as Christians is shaped by what the Bible has to say about Jesus. I think often, you know, Jesus becomes merely a symbol or an excuse of what it is that we already believe, right? Instead of being shaped by Christ, we, we shape Christ to what we already think or what we think is right. And I think it's very easy to fall into this trap of idol-making. C.S. Lewis said, um, it makes little difference whether idols are pictures and statues outside the mind or imaginative constructions within it. Right? There's no difference, he says, between, you know, a picture of an owl or something that we might make and the kind of image that we have of God in our heads. Right? When we're praying, when we're thinking about God in our minds, what image comes to mind? 
Whatever that image is in your head, it's wrong. It's wrong. C.S. Lewis in his book, A Grief Observed, says this, my idea of God is not a divine idea, right? Whatever picture you have in your mind of God, that is wrong. It has to be shattered time after time. God shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. I think this is the vigilance that we have to have, that our image of God is the one that is given to us in Scripture and not our kind of wishful thinking about who God is, right? We might imagine a picture of God looking something like God in the um, Michelangelo's, you know, the Sistine Chapel, this, you know, grandfatherly figure reaching out. We have these images of God and of Jesus from pictures that we've seen, and that is not, that is not God. And we have to be constantly vigilant to knock down these false images. The Athenians and the idols of the Athenians, it's symptomatic of the idols in their hearts. That's the problem. They represent, these idols, the things that they are longing for in their hearts. These are the things that they're looking to for salvation, for healing, for security, for meaning. And this is why, you know, the reformers of the 16th century constantly warned us against idol making. And John Calvin said that our hearts are perpetual idol factories. That we have this tendency to make idols of the things that, you know, are created things rather than the creator. In the Bible, there are many different words that gets translated as idol because of its importance in our faith. Some of the words in the Bible for idols can mean a graven image, like an object. It can mean something uh, more abstract, like something that is worthless or an abomination. It can refer to an object containing a spirit. Sometimes the word hevel is used to describe an idol, and that's the word, remember, in the book of Ecclesiastes. It was the word that we heard over and over again. Emptiness, a mist, shadow, nothing, a vapor. Other words can refer to a specific idol, like that of a demon, for example. But I think the most interesting word for an idol is one I discovered this week uh, from Ezekiel. Ezekiel is interesting because of all the synonyms that were available to him for an idol, he only uses one word. And it's a word that he uses 39 times, at least in the translation I have. One word. And it's the Hebrew gilulim. This is a word which comes from a root meaning round or rolled, but is used pejoratively as dung pellets. That's the FCC-approved translation, right? It's something that's rolled, so you can kind of, kind of picture that. That's their value, right? Ezekiel says, that's what you're worshiping. That's what you're looking to for salvation and meaning. And yet, that's what our hearts are drawn to. Dung pellets. What consumes your heart and imagination? What gives your life value and meaning? What do you think, if I only have this, my life will be truly happy and fulfilled? 
Is it having a romantic relationship? Maybe getting married or having kids? Maybe it's having a certain kind of reputation among your friends or a particular career or having power or prosperity or perhaps beauty, bronze, some political agenda, some cause to which you can give your life to. There are so many potential idols and we are drawn by multiple idols and many of them tempt us in subtle ways. I read a story this week about a woman who made a meal for her church's potluck dinner and she brought her dish on this very special serving plate that had once belonged to her deceased mother. Now another woman who was her friend was helping her set up the potluck dinner with her and in transferring the dish she dropped this precious dish and it shattered. The woman to whom that dish belonged never spoke to that woman again because that dish and the memories contained in that dish of her mother were more important to her than her friendship. That dish ended up being her idol because that was the most important thing. You know, over the years, I've seen people making idols of all kinds of things. I've seen people make an idol out of their anger or out of their sadness or their family, the ethnicity that they belong to, the grades that they get at school, the school that they attend, a favorite memory or a job or a position. I mean, just about anything that you can think of, people can and have made an idol of it. Now, these are not necessarily bad things. It's when they become the ultimate or the primary source of our meeting, when they consume all of our energies and imagination and delight, when they become the thing to which we look for sense of self, that that's when they become idols where they, for all practical purposes, have replaced God as the God of our lives. Idolatry is turning things, whether good things or dung pellets, into ultimate things. It's to trust in the created things rather than in the creator. God is the creator. God created everyone and everything. And God is the one who sustains the world. And he has loved us, and he has raised Jesus Christ from the dead to give us this assurance. I think what Paul saw in Athens really, in many ways, characterizes what's going on in our world here now in New Brunswick today. The people there were searching for novelty and new ideas. And isn't that what so many of the young people are doing today? Looking for something new and interesting. Something, this is probably the wrong way of saying it, something grammable or you know, something to be able to post, right? There's so many idols Idols that permeate, even though people may not think of them as idols or think of them as a uh, philosophy to which they uh, are attached. In Paul's day, what the idols that he saw indicated to him that his was a world of pluralism and one of toleration. 
the Romans encouraged the worship of other gods and religions as long as you maintain the status quo, as long as you did not challenge Roman supremacy, authority, and legitimacy. And again, that's very much like the world we live in today. And so I think Paul here gives us a clue, offers us some insight about how we might engage with the world and share the gospel today. You notice that in his spirit, he is disturbed by the idolatry around him, but he chooses to engage with the world respectfully and begins by noting their points of agreement. He knows that they don't know the Bible, and so he begins with some common understanding with ideas that they would recognize. He points to their desire for God. He points out the idols that they have created as signs pointing to a longing in their heart. Right. And I think that's where we have to begin. To look at the people around us and look for the kinds of questions that we share. Questions about parenting or careers, about illness or death as places where we can begin to have witness and conversation. And notice, you know, Paul's doing all of this because he just happens to be there and he's just waiting in line. It's not like he was, you know, he had planned some sort of crusade or some great outreach to this community. It's where he was, where he just happened to be. He went to church, he went to the grocery store, he stopped by this school. He just happened to be there and he had this conversation. So maybe walking around here in New Brunswick, maybe you can see the many gods that the people around here worship. The things that give people meaning and belonging. You can see the giant sports stadiums and the athletic facilities and recognize the desire for glory, the desire to belong, the desire for heroes. You can see the science and technology buildings and the scientism to which they look to provide explanations for life, to be able to solve the problems of the world. You can see the art museums and the beauty that points again to higher meaning. You can see the dorms, or at least in my day, and see the pictures of women in bikinis and the pyramids of beer cans as pointing to some other god. You can see worship, and it's, it's just, it just pervades our culture. The triplet gods of capitalism, materialism, and consumerism as people look for the next new thing. The twin gods of nationalism and patriotism looking for security in uncertain times. And I think all these gods that are being worshipped, they point to something deeper, to this unknown god. to this unknown God that they may not even be aware of. Rudolf Ott called this sense of the numinous, a sense of the presence of something beyond us, indefinable, a feeling hidden just beyond our reach, a suspicion of something more, what he called the idea of the holy. And just like the Athenians had built this altar to this unknown God, they sensed something that must be there that they couldn't quite grasp. And that's our world too. Paul says that they were feeling their way toward God, toward this altar, and even though God was not very far off, they could not find him. 
they were groping around. And I love this word picture here. You know, the, um, remember the story that, that Homer tells about uh, Odysseus and, and the Cyclops? And he, remember he jabbed the, the eye of the Cyclops and so he couldn't see, right? And so he's trying to find Odysseus and he's like just groping around, like just you know, trying to find him. That's the word he uses here. You're groping in the dark to find this, this thing that you know is there. But you can't, but you haven't found it. This this unknown God. And Paul says, I know who this God is. You're so close. And this is this is who he is. And I think this is where you're gonna lose the majority of people. If we talk about God and about morality in some generic sense, let's all get along, let's all respect each other, uh, you'll have an audience. But once you bring up Jesus Christ and the resurrection, that becomes, that becomes a sticking point. Whoa, not, now you're getting so exclusive. Why, why do you have to be so narrow-minded? But Paul and we cannot suggest even remotely that Jesus is just one more God in the pantheon of Athenian or American gods. We can share the vocabulary. We can share the language of the people but we cannot share the worldview. Christians were hated in Paul's day because they asserted arrogantly that they knew the one truth and the one God, the creator of everyone and everything. They were called haters of humanity because they refused to participate in the worship of the deities that everyone else was bowing down to. We have to make that stand. We can't be just a part of this sensibility of the world where toleration and pluralism is everything. Now, again, there are fine values, civic values. If it means simply that we want to be respectful of others and allow others to have freedom of worship, but when pluralism and a toleration becomes, you know, everything is kind of fuzzy, nobody knows the truth, and everyone's personal beliefs and opinions are equally valid, then it just becomes, it just becomes a morass of absurdity. It's absolutely unworkable. It's absolutely unworkable. We have to find common ground to work together. Yes, a common life of worship within us, but a common life of work and engagement with our communities, with all of our neighbors. But we cannot and must not slide into the sensibility that all religious paths, all different philosophies are equally valid and lead to some generic God that we can all agree is okay. That's a logical and spiritual impossibility. For us, our ultimate allegiance to anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ is idolatry. It is looking to anything or anyone other than the creator as revealed in the scriptures in Jesus Christ as our ultimate good. And like Paul, we cannot control how people respond to that. Some will mock, most will mock. Some may be curious to learn more, and a few will believe. 
But that's our job. It's to be faithful and creative, looking for those opportunities to share the gospel as we look around the world around us. Now unto the King of Kings, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. God, we confess that um, our hearts are ever turning toward idols. That though we confess you as our Lord, in our daily living, we so often turn to things to give us meaning and purpose. So many ways, God, we have bought into the cultural narrative to be like everybody else. That the patterns of our living, the patterns of our loving, is no different from those around us. God, we, we're, not, we're not saying or suggesting that we are better in any way. But God, we, we want to be able to confess the truth and to be able to do that wherever we are to challenge the idols of our world today so God would you give us the courage give us the eyes to see the idols around us And teach us to challenge them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.